Section 7 of The Jolly Parisienne and Other Novelettes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Lisa Reichert. Mademoiselle Flavie by Emile Zola. Translated by George D. Cox. Chapter 2. Mademoiselle Flavie. Baron Danvier was sitting in the room which served him as a study, a cold, lofty apartment furnished with old-fashioned leather-covered furniture. For the last two days he had been in a state of stupor, Mademoiselle Chouin having informed him of what had befallen Flavie. In vain had she softened and toned down the facts. The old man had been overcome by the blow, and it was only the thought that the offender was in a position to offer the sole reparation possible that kept him from death. That morning he was awaiting the visit of this man, who was utterly unknown to him, but who had robbed him of his daughter. He rang the bell. "'Joseph, a young man will call, whom you will show in here at once. I am not at home to anyone else,' he said. Sitting alone at his fireside, he brooded bitterly. The son of a mason, a starveling without any position— Mademoiselle had certainly spoken of him as a promising youth, but what a disgrace in a family whose honour had hitherto been stainless. Flavie had accused herself with a kind of passionate eagerness so as to acquit her governess of the slightest blame. Since the painful scene she had kept her room, and indeed the baron had refused to see her. Before forgiving her he was determined to look into the matter. All his plans were laid— but his hair had grown whiter, and his head shook with age. "'Monsieur Nantes,' announced Joseph. The baron did not rise. He simply turned his head and looked fixedly at Nantes, who walked forward. The latter had had the good sense not to yield to a desire to dress himself up. He had simply bought a black coat and a pair of trousers, which were decent but very worn, and gave him the appearance of a poor but careful student, with nothing of the adventurer about him. He stopped in the middle of the room and waited, standing up, but without humility. "'So it is you, sir,' stammered the old man. But he could not continue, for his emotion choked him, and he feared lest he might commit some act of violence.' After a pause he said simply, "'You have committed a wicked deed, sir.' Then, when Nantes was about to make some excuse, he repeated more emphatically, "'A wicked deed. I wish to know nothing. I request you not to explain anything to me. Even if my daughter had thrown herself at your head, your crime would have been the same. Only robbers break in upon families in this way.' Nantes hung his head again. It is making money very easily, setting a trap in which one is certain of catching both child and father. Allow me, sir, interrupted the young man, stung by these words. But the baron made a violent gesture. What? Why should I allow anything? It is not for you to speak here. I am telling you what I am in duty bound to tell you, and what you are bound to hear, since you come before me as a culprit— you have insulted me. Look at this house. Our family has lived here for more than three centuries without reproach. Standing here, are you not conscious of our ancient honour and dignity? Well, sir, you have trifled with all that. 
It nearly killed me, and today my hands tremble as if I had suddenly grown ten years older. Be silent and listen to me. Nantes had turned very pale. He had taken a difficult part upon himself. He felt anxious to make the blindness of passion serve as his pretext. "'I lost my head,' he muttered, trying to make up some tale. "'I could not look at Mademoiselle Flavie.' At his daughter's name, the baron rose and cried in a voice like thunder, "'Silence! I have told you that I do not wish to know anything.' Whether my daughter sought you or you sought her, it matters little to me. I have asked her nothing, and I ask you nothing. Keep your confessions to yourselves. I will have nothing to do with such things. Then he sat down again, trembling and exhausted. Nantes bent his head, feeling deeply moved in spite of the command he had over himself. After a pause, the old man continued in the dry tone of a person discussing business matters. I beg pardon, sir. I had determined to keep cool, but failed. You are not at my disposal. I am at yours, since I am in your power. You are here to carry out what has become necessary. To business, sir. And thenceforward he affected to speak like a lawyer, settling as agreeably as possible some shameful case in which he was loath to dabble. He began formally, Mademoiselle Flavie d'Anvilliers inherited at the death of her mother a sum of two hundred thousand francs, which she was not to receive until her marriage. This sum has produced interest, but here are the accounts of my guardianship which I will communicate to you. He opened a book and began to read some figures. Nantes in vain tried to stop him. Emotion seized him in the presence of this old man, who appeared so upright and simple, and who seemed to him so great because he was so calm. Finally, the baron concluded, I bestow on you, by an agreement which my notary drew up this morning, another sum of two hundred thousand francs. I know that you have nothing. You can draw those two hundred thousand francs at my banker's on the day after the marriage." "'But I don't ask for your money, sir,' said Nantes. "'I only want your daughter.' The baron cut him short. "'You have not the right to refuse,' he said, "'and my daughter could not marry a man with less money than herself. "'I give you the dowry which I intended for her, that is all. "'Possibly you reckoned on more, "'for I have the credit of being richer than I really am.' And as the young man remained mute at this last thrust, the baron put an end to the interview by ringing the bell. "'Joseph, tell Mademoiselle Flavie that I want her in my room at once.' He had risen from his chair and now began to walk slowly about the room. Nantes remained motionless. He was deceiving this old man, and he felt small and powerless before him. At last Flavie appeared. "'My child,' said the baron, "'here is the man. The marriage will take place as soon as possible.' Then he went out of the room, leaving them alone, as if, so far as he was concerned, the marriage were over. When the door shut, silence reigned. Nantes and Flavie looked at one another. They had never met before. He thought her very handsome with her pale and haughty face, and her large grey eyes which never drooped. Perhaps she had been crying during the three days that she had spent in her room, 
but the coldness of her cheeks must have frozen her tears. She it was who spoke first. "'Then the matter is settled, sir,' she said. "'Yes, madame,' replied Nantes simply. Her face contracted involuntarily as she cast a long look at him, a look which seemed to be fathoming his baseness. "'Well, so much the better,' she continued. "'I was afraid I should not find anyone to agree to such a bargain.' Nantes could distinguish in her voice all the scorn which she felt for him, but he raised his head. If he had trembled before the father, knowing that he was deceiving him, he determined to be firm with the daughter, who was his accomplice. "'Excuse me, madame,' he said calmly, and with the greatest politeness. "'I think you misconceive the position in which what you rightly call the bargain has placed us. I apprehend that, from to-day forth, we are on a footing of perfect equality. Indeed, interrupted Flavie with a scornful smile. Yes, perfect equality. You require a name in order to conceal a fault which I do not presume to condemn, and I give you my name. On my side I require money and a certain amount of social position in order to carry out some great enterprises, and you furnish me with that money and position." We thus become two partners whose capitals balance. It only remains for us to express our mutual thanks for the service which we are rendering to one another. She smiled no longer. Indeed, a look of irritated pride appeared upon her face. After a pause, she asked, You know my conditions? No, madame, said Nantes, preserving perfect calmness. Be good enough to name them. I agree to them in advance. Upon this she spoke as follows, without once hesitating or blushing. You will never be my husband, save in name. Our lives will remain completely distant and separate. You will give up all rights over me, and I shall owe no duty towards you. At each sentence Nantes made an affirmative sign. This was precisely what he desired. If I thought it part of my duty to be gallant, he said, I should assert that such cruel conditions would drive me to despair but we are above empty compliments. I am pleased to see that you have such a just appreciation of our respective positions. We are not entering upon life by the path of roses. I only ask one thing of you, madame, which is, that you will not make use of the liberty I shall accord you, in such a way as to necessitate any interference on my part. What, sir? exclaimed Flavie violently, her pride revolting. Nantes bowed respectfully, and entreated her not to be offended. Their position was a delicate one. They must both of them put up with certain illusions, without which a perfect understanding would be impossible. He refrained from insisting further. Mademoiselle Chouin, in a second interview, had told him of Flavie's fault. Her friend was a certain Monsieur de Fondant, the husband of one of Flavie's school companions. Whilst she was spending a month with them in the country, she one evening found herself in this man's power without knowing exactly how it had all happened. Mademoiselle Chouin almost went so far as to speak of violence. Suddenly Nantes felt a friendly impulse. Like all those who are conscious of their own power, he was fond of being good-natured. "'Listen, madame,' he exclaimed. "'We don't know one another, but it would be really wrong of us to hate one another at first sight.' Perhaps we are made to understand each other. I can see that you despise me, but perhaps that is because you do not know my story. 
Then he began to talk feverishly, throwing himself into a state of excitement as he spoke of his life, his ambition, and his desperate, fruitless efforts in Paris. Then he displayed his scorn of what he called social conventionalism, in which ordinary men become entangled. What mattered the opinion of the world, he asked, when a man had his foot on it? He must show his superiority. Power was an excuse for all. And in glowing terms he painted the sovereign existence which he would make for himself. He feared no further obstacle. Nothing prevailed against power. He would be powerful, and therefore he would be happy. Don't imagine that I am miserably sordid, he continued. I am not selling myself for your fortune. I simply take your money as a means to rise. Oh, if you only knew what is working within me, if you only knew the burning nights which I have spent always meditating over the same idea, which was only swept away by the reality of the morrow, then you would understand me. You would then, perhaps, be proud to lean on my arm, saying to yourself that you at least had furnished me with the means to become someone. She listened to him in silence, without one of her features moving, and he asked himself a question which he had been turning over in his mind for three days past, without being able to find an answer to it. Had she noticed him at his window, that she had so readily accepted Mademoiselle Chouin's scheme when the latter had mentioned him? The singular idea occurred to him that, perhaps, she would have loved him with a romantic love if he had indignantly refused the bargain which the governess had proposed to him. He stopped at last, and Flavie maintained an icy silence. Then, as if he had not made his confession, she repeated in a dry voice, then, my husband in name only, our lives completely distinct, absolute liberty. Nantes at once resumed his ceremonious air, and in the curt voice of a man discussing an agreement, replied, It is settled, madame. Ill-pleased with himself, he then withdrew. How was it that he had yielded to the foolish desire to overcome that woman? She was very handsome, but it was better that there should be nothing in common between them, for she might hamper him in life. End of section 7